Well, several years ago, I spoke at a church in Northern California, and the next morning, one of the youth pastors drove me to the Sacramento airport. We had plenty of time uh, to talk before the flight. The flight wasn't for a couple of hours, and, and as we were talking, he asked me if I'd like a cup of coffee. I always do. So we exited the freeway, and we pulled into a McDonald's. Well, when this young man ordered his coffee, the clerk charged him $1.29. I placed the exact same order. And that's when the clerk said to me, Sir, that'll be $0.79. And I said, $0.79? I pointed to the youth pastor. I said, he ordered the exact same thing. And you charged him $1.29. She said, well, yes, sir. But you get the senior discount. (laughs) And for the first time in my life, it hit me. There are people out there who are viewing me as a senior citizen. (laughs) And this McDonald's clerk was no teenager. I mean, a teeny bopper considers anybody over 30 ready for the retirement home. This gal was a 20-something, a young lady. I mean, she was mature enough to be able to read people. At first, her assessment caught me off guard, and then I bristled up. I kind of copped an attitude. I even tried to correct her. I told her firmly, I said, look, I'm not a senior citizen, and I don't want any discount. I'm paying what everybody else pays. And I slammed down my buck 29 right on the counter. I wasn't giving in to customer profiling. And yet, hey, despite my reluctance, here's the truth. Nobody escapes reality. I had been sized up. In the perfectly good eyes of another adult, I looked elderly. And that was a few years ago. I'm sure it's even more evident today. I'm 52 years young. My oldest son is three years south of 30. I've got a daughter who teaches high school. They actually call my little girl Mrs. Keller. It seems like just yesterday I attended high school. Where did the time go? In this last year, I've had a kid graduate from college another graduate from high school, then the high school kid goes off to college, and last Saturday the college grad got married. Kathy and I are now official freebirds. And the, yeah. And the real mystery is how I can look so old while my lovely wife keeps drinking from the fountain of youth. I have no idea. But trust me, nobody is offering a senior discount to Kathy. Trust me. People keep mistaking her for her 25-year-old daughter. But, but here's what really blows my mind. I have now been a pastor of a church for 30 years. Three decades. Thank you. Hey, I was a pastor when Jimmy Carter was president. That's no peanuts. Walter Cronkite was still hosting the evening news when I became a pastor. I was a pastor before John Lennon got shot. 
Since I became a pastor, the population of planet Earth has increased by 2.2 billion people. I'm just saying, I've been a pastor now for a very long time. You know, recently it dawned on me that I've been a pastor for about as long as the Apostle Paul was a pastor when he wrote his first letter to Timothy. Thirty years had elapsed between Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and his letter to Timothy from a prison cell in Rome. Hey, Paul was this angry rabbi who hated Christians. That is, until Jesus knocked him off his high horse with a blinding light, literally. Suddenly, Paul realized he had been wrong. This Jesus was alive. And Paul had no other choice but to follow Jesus. And Paul followed him hard. He followed Jesus around the world three times, sowing the seeds of the gospel. Paul won continents for Christ. This one man shook up the Roman Empire. Everywhere he went, he inflamed enemies and won converts until the men who feared him threw Paul in prison. And from a jail cell, 30 years after he started, Paul put pen to parchment. Like a spiritual volcano, he erupted with thoughts and with wisdom. He spilt his heart onto a sheepskin that he then mailed to his protege, Timothy. Paul bubbled over with lessons that he had learned from 30 years in ministry. By worldly measures, Paul was a poor man, but he was in possession of a spiritual treasure chest of experiences that he now feels he needs to share. And, and quite frankly, I feel a little bit like Paul. Not, not that I'm adding any books to the Bible. I mean, that no longer happens. And if it did, I wouldn't be an author. Not that I've suffered or sacrificed like Paul. Unlike Paul, few miracles dot my resume. I've yet to win continents. Very few kings and emperors fear my influence. Yet like Paul, I have logged 30 years doing what God called me to do. And over the course of those 30 years, I too have learned a few valuable lessons. On October the 10th, 2010, our church will celebrate 30 years of God's faithfulness. I think it's cool. 10, 10, 10. I went to public school, and I know that equals 30. 10, 10, 10 equals 30. And on 10, 10, 10, we're planning a special day. But over the next few months, I want to share with you some of what those 30 years of ministry have taught me. And there's no better launching pad than Paul's first letter to Timothy. Each week, we're going to break down Paul's words to Timothy, and where appropriate, I'm going to share a lesson or two that I've learned. In fact, we're going to tackle this letter from several different angles. Today, we're going to strike right at the heart. We're going to probe the theme verse to this letter. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This passage serves as the trunk from which the rest of the book sprouts. After a close examination of the tree trunk, we're going to then comb the limbs and the leaves. We're going to take a couple of weeks to survey the book, all six chapters. And then we're going to take a few more weeks after that, and we're going to pull out from the book different threads that run throughout. We're going to try to explore Paul's letter to Timothy as thoroughly as we can. Well, our text this morning 
is chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is the crux of the entire letter. Paul communicates to Timothy. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Here's the theme of 1 Timothy. Like the life that Kathy and I have lived for the last 30 years, it's all about the church. It's about growing the church and building the church and feeding the church and caring for the church and how to conduct yourself in the house of God. Verse 16 says that God has entrusted the mysteries of godliness to His church. You know, that makes the church a really big deal. And since Timothy is a church leader, it's vital that he know how God wants him to conduct himself in God's household. You see, the church, any church, even this church, is like an automobile. When a car drives by, all you see is the car until you pop the hood. Get into its mechanics and you realize that a car is a lot of different systems, each operating separately yet working together to keep the car running at optimum performance. There's the brake system, and the cooling system, and the ignition system, and the electrical system, and the steering system, and the drivetrain system, etc., etc. Any one of these systems break down, and the whole car grinds to a halt. Well, the same is true in the church. You think, well, a church is a church is a church. That is, until you pop the hood. Scrutinize its mechanics and you'll find that a church is made up of different functions and principles and interactions. Different systems operate in a church. There's a system of authority and accountability. There's a way to teach sound doctrine and expose false doctrine. Church life includes certain order and membership and relationships. There's a system for handing out benevolence and showing grace. The church interfaces with the world as a witness and interfaces with God as a worshiper. There are all kinds of systems that make up the church. You see, pop the hood on the church and you see what can either keep us humming or what can cause us to sputter. A lot is involved in a successful church. And this is what we plan to do in the weeks to come. We're popping the hood on the church. We'll be conducting a course in church mechanics. And I want you to understand from the outset how strategic this is, how important this series of messages really is. Not only for our church, but for other churches as well. We never know where the CDs and the podcasts end up. I hope you'll be praying for me in these messages. I'm trusting God to use these messages to retether His people to His church. For I think we have finally reached the point where we can sound the alarm without appearing alarmist. There is indeed a crisis in today's Christianity. And here it is. Too many believers have quit on the local church. Misinformation or negative experiences or techno-substitutes or a myriad of distractions or just plain neglect 
has warped our, experience, our perspective. The Christian church is now irrelevant to many Christians. And this is tragic. This past week, Sandra Parrish and WSB Radio ran a feature on the millennial generation's abandonment of Christianity and what churches are trying to do to reach them. Perhaps you heard it. The report quoted some recent research. Among American adults ages 18 to 29, 65% now either rarely or never attend church. That's huge. Teenagers who went to church in high school now drop out afterwards at a rate of 70%. And this isn't just a trend among young adults. I read elsewhere that 52% of Americans, that's 157 million people, claim to belong to a Protestant church. Yet on any given Sunday, only 28% of those Protestants attended church. Between 1990 and 2004, the United States population expanded by 18%. In the same time frame, church attendance declined by 3%. Tom Rainer writes, The population in the United States is exploding, but the church is losing ground. We are in a steep state of decline. The American church is dying. You know, today in post-Christian Europe, except for funerals, only 5% of the population ever darkens the door of a church. Is America far behind? I have no statistics to prove it, but over my 30 years as a pastor, I've seen these same disturbing trends. You know, I grew up in the church, and as a kid, I can remember that if you attended church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night, you were considered a faithful member. Now, granted, that might have been too much. You can overdose on the church. I mean, if you're always at church, you can neglect other things that are important, like your family and like your witness in the world. But when I started pastoring, the shift had already become evident. In 1980, you were considered faithful if you attended church just once a week. In the 90s, if you made it twice a month, you supported your church. By 2000, if you were a faithful member... You were considered a faithful member if you came once a month. Today, if you show up on Christmas and Easter and toss a 20 in the offering box, you think you've done your duty. You know, I drove past a, a church marquee this past week announcing that today, September 12th, is, quote, National Back to Church Sunday. I wasn't sure I believed that. That's great. That fits right with my sermon. So I went home and Googled it. And it's true. There's a website that's generated one and a half million invitations encouraging Americans to come back to church. And I hope it helps. But here's how my mind works. When faced with all these statistics, here's what I think. What's happened in the culture and among Christians that has caused the need for such a campaign? Why has the church fallen on such hard times? Is the church itself to blame? Have we stayed faithful to God? Are we a healthy church? Here is perhaps the biggest question. Do Christians today truly grasp the strategic role of the church? Do we get it? Today, Americans are up in arms because an Islamic mosque is to be built a half a block from New York City's Ground Zero. 
But if Christians were really concerned about the spread of Islam, rather than spend that money and that time and that effort blocking the mosque, we'd use those same resources to support our churches. You see, Islam is filling a spiritual void in the inner city. Immigrants cling to their foreign, false religion because they've yet to be shown a compelling witness for Jesus. Ultimately, it's a strong Christian church that will stem the tide of Islam. There is a battle raging in the world today, and God's only army is the church. Neglect the church, and you have abandoned the fight. Everything Paul is now going to say to Timothy about how to lead and conduct himself in the church hinges on these two verses here in chapter 3. Earlier in this same chapter, Paul is going to insist on leaders that they have top-shelf character. In chapter 4, Timothy is commanded to diligently follow good doctrine and model integrity in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. In chapter 5, Paul goes out of his way to make sure that the church's widows are treated fairly. You think, aren't there bigger fish to fry? Bigger battles than that? Why take the time to, to address that issue and make sure it's done right? Throughout the book, Timothy is emboldened to oppose heretics and heresy. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul goes militaristic. He says, fight the good fight of faith. I mean, why the urgency in these matters? Why is this so important? Isn't this just church? I mean, a few folks sitting in padded chairs, meeting a couple times a week at best, and then they just sit and talk and sing and pray. What's the big deal here? No one's manufacturing goods and services, or buying and selling, or enacting any laws, or entertaining anybody, or producing revenue, or training for any physical activity. So why does Paul write to Timothy as if the church is life and death. Because it is. Because it is. According to Paul's words to Timothy, the glory of God and the mysteries of godliness have been entrusted to the church. Our passage this morning teaches us that the church is unlike anything in heaven or on earth. The church might look like a Ford Escort. But pop the hood, and there's this monster 426 cubic inch Hemi with 425 horsepower that'll do 0 to 60 in 5.8 seconds. There's power under the hood. The church is a spiritual muscle car. The, engine, the church has the engine of a 70 Barracuda. But because most of us have never popped the hood, we putter around like we're in a, a Ford Geo Metro, Geo, or whatever. Now look at how Paul describes the church. He tells us who we are and what we are and why we are. Who we are. We are the house of God. What we are. We are the church of the living God. Why we are. We are the pillar of and ground of the truth. Now notice first, Paul tells us, we're the house of God. Most translations render it the household of God. For at the time of Paul and Timothy, churches didn't meet in designated places like temples and cathedrals and chapels. They met in households. 
Christian places of worship didn't exist in pagan Rome. The New Century Version translates the phrase, the family of God. That's what we are. This is who we are. We're God's family. When we come together, we're coming home. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 1, Paul tells Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. In other words, the church is one big happy family. That's what we are. And we need to act and function like an extended family. And, and hey, everybody is somebody in a family. I mean, every family has the weird uncle and the crazy cousin. I mean, doesn't your family have a weird uncle or a crazy cousin? Sure, sure you do. But it doesn't matter. They still get invited to the family reunion. They're, they're still part of the family. It's been said families are like fudge. Mostly sweet with a few nuts. I mean, here's the truth. You don't have to be perfect to be part of a family. You can have your strangeness. And we still love you. You can cop an attitude. And we'll, we'll love you right through it. Beware of churches where everybody has to be perfect or where everybody seems perfect. Hey, plastic makes perfect. But plastic isn't real or authentic or genuine. The church is God's family. And the family of God is no more like the Huxtables than the family that lives in your house. You don't get it right all the time. Family life gets messy. We grow, but then we fail. We're up, but then we fall. And yet in the good times and the bad times, a family's still a family. And the church sticks together because we're God's family. Understand, a church is a family, not a business. Don't, don't mistake the church for a business. Now, there is a business side to the church. We, we have leases and deeds and we deal with money. We have to report and account and manage things properly. But when a church functions like a business, it, it's headed down a wrong track. For example, in a business, the customer is always right. Isn't that true? I mean, it's all about pleasing the customer. Go to Burger King and you can have it your way. But in the church, the customer is always evil. <laughs> it's true. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We can't have it our way. We're selfish and prideful. We don't need it our way. We need to repent and submit to God's way. In the church, we aim to please God, not the customer. I mean, walk into a business and, and people are there to wait on you. You're encouraged to shop for what suits your needs or for what... For, for your own entertainment. You're there to be served, not serve. I mean, shop at the Gap, and nobody's going to ask you to grab a broom when you walk in the door and vacuum and help tidy up the place. In fact, you don't even have to put away the clothes you tried on. Somebody else will do that for you. Greeters at Walmart never ask you for a donation when you walk in. 
The Home Depot doesn't challenge you to help them carry out their mission. In a business, you're not saddled with any kinds of responsibilities. But not so in a family. A family is all about responsibility. As a family member, you're not just a consumer, you're a contributor. In a family, everyone knows that with privilege comes responsibility. You get chores to do if you're part of a family. And have you ever noticed that chore rhymes with bore? (laughs) That's deliberate. Chores are not designed to be fun and exciting and a fulfillment of your hidden potential. Here, take this broom and discover your hidden potential. In a family, you go out and you mow the grass because your dad tells you to mow the grass and because it needs to be done. You pay the rent because it comes due. You show up for dinner because you want to eat. You clean the dishes because you want to eat again. And this is how it works in the church. Jesus served us so we should serve each other. It's simple. You tithe your money because the tithe belongs to God and not you. You don't, you're cheating God. You come to the Bible study because you need to eat. And it's just rude for me to cook up a meal for you and you not bother to show up. I mean, this is what it's like to be part of a family. But when you're lonely, when you're wounded, when you're hurting, and you need someone to love you, it's taking interest in you and care for you, You don't visit the discount superstore. You run home. You seek out your family. And the church is God's family. If you're shopping around for a church, you're going about it all wrong. You pray and you ask God to call you to a church family. To reveal to you where He wants you to get involved. Even if a few of your needs might go unmet. You shed the consumer mentality. For better, for worse, in sickness and in health, you stay committed to your family. And in the end, you'll find that being a part of a family is far more rewarding than being a member at Costco. This is who we are, God's family. But listen to what we are. We are the church of the living God. Notice Paul differentiates the Christian God as the living God in contrast to the world's other so-called gods. Other gods are idols. They don't exist. They're powerless, dead gods. Make a pilgrimage to Medina, Saudi Arabia, and you can visit Muhammad's grave. He's dead. He's there in the tomb. Buddha's tooth lies in a temple in Sri Lanka. The rest of his body was cremated. Confucius is buried in a large Chinese cemetery. They're all dead. Jesus has a tomb as well. It was in a garden north of Jerusalem. But the tomb of Jesus was just a timeshare. He just borrowed it for the weekend. He didn't need it for long. Because Jesus' tomb is now empty. Jesus rose from the dead. 
This makes Jesus the one and only living God. And since we too are alive in Christ, then we are the church of the living God. When you repent of your sin and trust your life to Jesus, God sends His Spirit to inflate yours with love and with life and with power and with presence and with pardon and with peace. Suddenly you are born again. You're alive with the life of the risen Lord. You know, I almost hesitated earlier in referring to the church as a car because it is a flawed analogy. For the church is not a machine. It's alive. It's an animate object. I guess you could say the church is like a love bug. It's a car that's alive. As a church, we're more than an organization. We're a living organism. You join an organization by signing a card or by taking an oath. It's something that you do. But this is not what it takes to join the family of God. You're born into a family. Something happens to you. God acts on you. Dr. God takes the two paddles, repent and believe, and He shocks your heart. Boom! Until you come to life. That's how you become a part of God's family. You come to life. And if you were raised in a southern church, this is where you need to pay real close attention. Because you can walk the aisle a thousand times and respond to a thousand altar calls. And you can be a charter member of the first church and pay your dues and even sport a certificate and still fry on the grill in hell. You can be religious belong to a religious group and be dead in sin. The true church is alive. It inhales and exhales the very breath of God. It has a pulse. Put your stethoscope to the chest of the church and you'll hear God's heart beat. The Greek term translated church is ekklesia. It refers to a called out group. The church is an assembly of people who have been called out of the world, called to new life in Christ, and then called to live that life together. This is why the church is not a building, or a club, or a theater, or some show, or an event on Sundays. It consists of people who've been awakened, or as the old King James put it, quickened by the Holy Spirit. A Christian is alive to God and now alive to one another. A.W. Tozer once observed, 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life. The church is a beautiful community of believers made alive by God's Spirit, infused with new life and new loves and new power and new passions. It's beautiful. It's the church of the living God. Well, Paul tells us who we are. We're God's family. He, he tells us what we are. We're alive in Christ. And now he tells us why we are. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. Understand, the church is not a blog where you type in your opinion and then you wait on people to post their reaction. The church isn't a talk show where the pastor stirs the pot and then he lets the people who agree with him chime in. No, the church is far more important and strategic. Paul calls it the pillar and ground of the truth. 
Where else can folks go today to discover God's truth? Certainly not the media or the public schools or government. The church alone is what holds together the last vestiges of our Christian worldview. You see, Paul gives us his imagery. God's truth is like a house. You live in God's truth and it provides you warmth, and shelter, and protection, and safety. You abide in God's truth and you find opportunities for relationship and love and happiness and peace. But it's the church that supports this house of truth. The church is the footer on which God's truth sits. It's the posts holding up the roof of God's truth. And this is why the church can sometimes be taken for granted. Just like you can take for granted the steel girders in this building. You know, they're there. They hold up the roof. Without them, this building wouldn't exist. Likewise, the church sometimes gets taken for granted. It's the structure around which we live this life and enjoy this truth. The church is the environment where God's truth is best understood. You see, you can't accurately interpret God's truth outside the church. For biblical doctrines are best understood in the context of practical relationships. Scripture was never intended to be dissected by theologians sitting alone in some ivory tower. The Scripture is to be interpreted by born-again believers living together in meaningful relationships, slugging it out with a hostile world. This is why our Through the Bible groups represent such a hopeful opportunity for spiritual growth. Because you can hear the Word, then you can apply it with other believers to the specifics of your life. What a great interpretation you'll come to. Once there was a lonely lady, terribly lonely. She bought a little parrot to keep her company. She figured that if she had this pet parrot, she would always have someone to talk to. But after bringing the bird home from the pet store, she couldn't get it to speak. So she went back to the store. She complained to the owner. He said to her, he said, Ma'am, does your parrot have a mirror in the cage? You know, parrots love those little mirrors. And so she bought a mirror. She put it in the cage but the bird still wouldn't talk. Well, the next day, she complained again to the store owner. This time he said, Well, ma'am, does your parrot have one of those ladders? Parrots love ladders. And a happy parrot is a talkative parrot. So she bought a ladder, took it home, put it in the cage, tried the parrot, the ladder, not a peep out of the parrot. Well, on her third visit to the pet store, the owner suggested, he said, Well, have you tried a swing? You know, parrots love those swings. Get your parrot swinging and he'll talk up a storm. So she bought a swing. Two days later, the woman returned to the pet store. When the owner asked her about her parrot, she replied that the bird had died. It was dead. He said, ma'am, I'm so sorry, but you got to tell me, did your parrot ever say anything? She replied, well, yes, yes, he did. Just before he died, in this very soft, faint, weak little whisper, my parent asked me, Don't they sell any food at that pet store? <laughs> well, here's a parody on the popular trends in today's church. Leaders think that they're going to bring people back to church with mirrors and with ladders and with swings. Oh, oh, look in the mirror of introspection. Self-help. 
pop psychology. This, this has replaced Scripture in many quarters of the church. Ladders and rung by rung, how-to formulas have replaced simple faith in God. Swinging entertainment has replaced spiritual substance. People today are like parrots. They're exploring their inner self or they're climbing the rungs of some man-made system or they're swinging on an emotional roller coaster all the while they're dying for lack of food. The Bible, the truth of Scripture. Why does the church exist? We are the pillar and the ground of the truth. We are God's one watering hole in a desert of dryness. Well, see, here's how our modern society thinks. We like the superstores and the mega malls more than the moms and pops because we think bigger is better. And we even think this about church. We like the big churches. Bigger is better. That's what we like. We like efficiency and predictability, even in religion. Because predictability means that we're in control, not God. And as long as we're surrounded by noise, lots of noise, we don't care what it is, but we just want to be surrounded by noise because we, don't, we then don't have to bother with those nagging words of truth that get under our skin and prompt change and repentance. And yet, up against this backdrop, the church stands out. Because in a corporate society, the church comes along and it offers us a chance for family and for real relationship. And it teaches us true commitment. Hey, the church, even in the midst of this automated world that we live in, this mechanical world, the church comes along and offers us life. The life of God. That's what we crave. And then the church, it comes... And it pierces the information overload with the clarion call of God's truth. And oh, how weary we are of noise and how desperate we are for truth. Up against this backdrop, the church stands out. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said years ago. It's when the church is absolutely different from the world that she invariably attracts it. Perhaps that's the real key to a successful Back to Church Sunday. Well, over the next few months, we'll be popping the hood on the church, and we'll be learning more of why the church is the most important entity on earth. I hope you'll allow God's Spirit and God's Word to deepen your understanding of the church, heighten your appreciation of the church, and intensify your commitment to the church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, thank you for your words today. Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you for this instruction, this letter to Timothy about how he's to conduct himself in the household of God. This is a very important thing we're dealing with. And, and Lord, it, it deserves to be handled well. And, and we deserve to your church deserves the very best from us in conduct and in belief and in character among our leaders, among our people. Lord, we need to have good 
attitudes. We need to conduct ourselves well. We need to, to have good doctrine, sound doctrine. We need to point out false doctrine. There's so many things that, that you've given us to do and to be. Lord, over these next weeks and a couple months here, I pray, Lord, that you'll speak to our hearts, that you'll encourage us, and that you'll make us to be the people that you desire. And make this church, Lord, the church that you desire. And so, Lord, we love you. We love you so much. We thank you for loving us and blessing us this day. We pray for our Through the Bible groups this evening and all week long. We pray that you'll bless them and use them, that the people will find a a real oasis in their week, a, a chance to just refresh their thoughts with your word and then fellowship with one another. Bless these groups, Lord. Continue to grow our church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's all stand together.